0: Canucks Central Wednesday. It's Stan Riccio and Satyar Shaw in the Kintech studio. Well, I guess we're uh, in the mobile Kintech studio, Sats. Yes, uh, we
1: are. We're both on location.
0: <laughs> we're all over the place uh, working remote today, as Bick alluded to, and uh, enjoying it. But um, <laughs> I'm in yeah, smoky I mean, Toronto.
1: Yeah, you are. Sats in
0: beautiful Vancouver.
1: Yes, yes, I am. I am in beautiful Vancouver, and I made an appearance on big screen as I was testing out the uh, <laughs> the camera working from home, and he was rattled, quite rattled.
0: Oh, well, uh, <laughs> I'm sure Bick can deal with it.
1: I'm sure he's fine. I'm sure he's fine. He just can't get away from me. Even when I'm not in studio, he's going to have to look at me.
0: Like, uh, like all of us, he's riled up about uh, Lionel Messi going to MLS and future Storyline refusing to play at BC place whenever inter Miami comes to BC place. Cause I don't think it's anytime soon if we're being completely honest about it, but
1: no, we'll
0: leave that where it is because you know what? There's Canucks things to talk about today as there normally is with the Vancouver Canucks. And it's more about the Stanley cup final and the way Vegas has built their 2-0 lead, the way they've gone through this playoff, the way they've built their team, you know, yes, they got Shea Theodore in the expansion draft. That helped quite a bit. But Alec Martinez came later. You know, they've really brought along a guy like Zach Whitecloud. Haig is a guy that they brought in. They've done a really good job of building out a defense. And there's a lot of, Size on that defense. Of course, there's talent when you got guys like Theodore and Pietrangelo, but there's a lot of size on that back end. They certainly didn't compromise on size when going after these players no. and uh, mobility. You know, all of these players are quite mobile on top of having the size to go with it. So it it feels like if there's one takeaway to have from vegas who looks like the incumbent stanley cup champions although people in vancouver know not to rest your laurels on a 2-0 stanley cup final lead this is what the copycat is going to be or maybe this year it's Vegas's big D if you can go out and build it.
1: Yeah. Everyone's looking for the big D, right? I mean, yes. as far as, uh, as far as Vegas is concerned, you know, you need to have players that can clear the net, right? You need to have players that can win board battles, guys that can break up the cycle. All those things obviously are necessary. But at the end of the day, it also comes down to, do you have guys who can play design roles, like specific roles for your team, right? It's like, yeah, you have all these big players, but it's not like you can go and sign any big defenseman that you want and be like, now we can be like Vegas because You look at Vegas and how they allot their ice time, the player who gets the most ice time on the PK is Braden McNabb. It's not, you know, Shay Theodore. It's not Alex Petrangelo. It's Braden McNabb. On the Canucks Blue Line, like, who are the players getting the most ice time on the PK? Quinn Hughes. That's, you know, like, he probably shouldn't be the guy getting the most ice time, right? OEL, he's not Braden McNabb. So they don't have a defenseman who's an ace penalty killer outside of Philip Heronik, who played that role really well. So even Alex Petrangelo is second in ice time on the PK. I guess you can live in a world where you look at Heron and can say, he's the guy that plays the most on your PK and he's number one. We still need to have another ace penalty killer, a guy who does that in, as part of his job. Because Shea Theodore barely plays on the PK. It's four yeah. guys, right? It's it's uh, Petrangelo, it's McNabb, it's um, uh, Nick Haig and Zach Whitecloud. And really, it's just those three, Zach Whitecloud with Petrangelo and that get the most ice time. But those are the players that really get the share, lion's share of the responsibility on the PK. And it's very clear how Shea Theater gets a lot, uh, type of ice time he gets at evens and how he gets offensive zone draws as well. You need to have certain players that fit certain roles. And as much as they have size, that's huge and positive, but they have players that are very specific in the things they can do. And it all fits really well with their group.
0: Well, in the mold of the Canucks, you know, now that they've got Heronik, this front office would say they've got, you know, a top-end defenseman on their top two pairs, right? Now it's about finding a partner for those two players, finding a partner for Quinn Hughes, a more long-term partner, and also one for Philip Heronik on the left side. It may end up having to be Oliver ekman Larson for this year or whomever, but... Right now, the situation is you'd love to find permanent partners for those two that you can really be confident about. And if you look at both of the Stanley Cup final teams, Radko Gudis, who does look like he's going to suit up for Game 3, he's been a big part of Florida's success this year. And I've long thought he's an underrated defenseman. You know, a lot of people just call him a goon or whatever. The guy's a lot more than a goon. He's a good hockey player and a really strong defenseman. and doesn't cost a ton either. Yeah. And then there's Braden McNabb, who, as you pointed out, first guy over the boards anytime Vegas is on the PK and a guy who's just been an absolute stalwart on their left side since expansion since they came into the league they got him in the expansion draft as well and he comes super cheap like these guys don't have to cost a ton it's just about finding the right fit for what you are looking for on your roster
1: and when you have players to build around, right? Like to your point, if, if you have Petrangelo who takes up a D pair, you have Shea Theodore who takes up a D mm-hmm. pair, then it becomes about what type of skill set do you need to supplement those types of players? Well, you don't need to pair Heronic with another Heronic type. You don't need to pair Quinn Hughes with a Quinn Hughes type. You don't even necessarily go need to go find the best all-around defenseman. Can you find a guy that does those things specifically well? Because if you put Brayden McNabb with, let's say, somebody who's not a high-caliber defenseman, that D-pair is going to struggle to some extent, right? Because he's not going to be able to do certain things those guys are able to do. But if you're sitting there as a guy that's supplementing the weaknesses of a talented player like a Shady Theodore, for instance, well, what what happens? You're asking less of him, you're allowing the, the skill guy to do the things he does well effectively, and that should allow you to be able to have a far more functional D-pair. And I look at the Canucks blue line, and th- that's the issue is, as good as OEL might be, and in theory could be, how is his fit on this blue line? Like, unless he somehow finds a way to be a good penalty killer again, and all of a sudden reinvents his game playing alongside Philip Hironik, it probably looks like his best role is to be a third-pair defenseman, right? And mean, moves yep. up when time is needed or whatever. But are you giving him that type of responsibility? Because you can't play him on the PK, really. You can't play him on the power play. So what? how yeah. do you get the most out of him? Can he be your Shea Theodore in, in some sense where Quinn Hughes and Faronic, they'll get a lot of ice time in different situations. And then here's a guy that you use maybe in, in more strategic ways to allow him to give you some surplus value because you're not going to be able to lean on him to go out there and, and play 25 minutes in all situations.
0: Well, if you, if you look at how OEL has been used, he's mostly been used... Now, we have a very short sample with Rick Tockett, but... Travis green in that short stint tried to use him as a shutdown defenseman with Tyler Myers. We saw Bruce Boudreaux keep that going and it did not have success, especially at the start of this season when OEL had a ton of struggles this year compared to even his first year in the, in a Vancouver Canucks uniform. So it's hard to imagine OEL playing bigger minutes, but he's got to at least play a third pair role. He's got to right. at least be able to play second PK minutes. Like he's got to do something. He can't just like trot him out there at five on five, completely sheltered minutes. Like that's, that's a tough look. You need to get more out of him than that.
1: Well, you do. And, and I think, I think you put him, you sheltering him on the third pair is the worst case scenario. If you're not buying him out, right. It's like, Hey, it hasn't worked out. One of the things we've discussed quite a bit over the last little while, let's say the last few months has been, you know, what are some models Vancouver can follow to some extent? Like Mm -hmm. what are some teams they can emulate and, and, and try to be like, and one team that comes up on the high end has been the Dallas stars, right? Because you look at a team that only a couple of years ago looked like, Hey, they're capped out bad situation. And now things have changed. There are some, some things that are comparable on their rosters, but what was the big thing they got this year? Jamie Ben found his game again. Like, you know, like he, he found his game. He played at a super high level and that allowed a team to take a big step forward. Now I'm not expecting him. OEL to be, Jamie Ben, who played at a nine ten million dollar level this year, like he played at a star level this year. But can he be Tyler Seguin? Mm-hmm. And Seguin, even though he's making eight or nine million, isn't playing at a level. Didn't play at that level this year, right? But he still played yeah. at maybe a five million dollar level. He still gave you know top six caliber play. Give you a good two way play. Give you a little bit of bottom line. He was he held his own defensively. He did a lot of positive things for that team. It's just not worth the money you're paying for it. But yeah. He still played and a feature role in the role. playoffs too. Exactly. Is that the best case scenario for OEL? I think it is. That, and I'm not saying it's going to happen, but the best case scenario to me is he finds his game kind of like he did last year in the first half of the season, not this past year, the year before, before it all fell apart. And you're able to find something with him and Heronic. That Heronic can be the guy that that carries the deep air, and OEL can, you know, he can move the puck and not be relied on to do a lot of the heavy lifting necessarily because you have Heronic that can rush the puck out and, and do a lot of the defensive work. That's, I think, the ideal scenario for Vancouver, for OEL. And that's your only bet internally to, I think, get that top-caliber performance with somebody not named Quinn Hughes nor Filip Hironik.
0: This text coming in, uh, wouldn't a Tanev look good right now for that role? (laughs) Uh, Yes, we've been saying it ever since. He's uh, really had a lot of success in Calgary and Know the injuries have started to to bite back on Tanev a little bit after, you know, the those first that first year where he was just, you know, um, indestructible for the Calgary flames, but it's it's fought back a little bit. Now he's going into the final year of that contract he signed. and it's uh, going to be interesting to see what happens with Chris Tanev. But yeah, a, ty- a player type like that. The Canucks lost Tanev in free agency, and they've continuously been looking for one for a replacement. They sort of had, Uh, a makeshift option with Luke Shen, it worked. Uh, It was passable, but obviously, um, you know, the overall defense is still a big issue
1: for this team. So we only saw four games of Philip Hironic here, right? Yes. And obviously, you know, Luke Shen was also shut down and whatever it was. If you can't find the player you're looking for, how beneficial would it be if you find a way to move Myers...
0: Mm-hmm.
1: can Shen plug that gap for a year to be your go one of your go-to penalty killers? Is that asking too much of him at this stage?
0: I think that would again, be asking too much,
1: yeah. It probably is. Like in, I think those are your options. If you're not able to make a trade to acquire a defenseman and clear cap space, your best bet is to kind of delve into the bargain bin again, find a guy for a million, find a guy specifically to be able to do those sort of things for you. Because they're still short that one player. And I think the defense ultimately is short two players long-term. And maybe the second one is maybe a guy like Elias Pettersson, DPD, right? Maybe even our guy Akito Hirose, maybe he emerges or whatever it is. I think one guy is going to have to be internal. But that penalty killer and somebody who could come in and provide you that defensive value to help you next year and the year afterwards has to be a player that's not in the organization yet.
0: The reality is, though, Sat, if the Canucks are going to get better defensemen, at a decent cost, which is what they're going to need. Um, it's got to come through the draft. And sure, maybe they have a couple that they are trying to develop, right? We saw big strides taken by Philip Johansson this year and what how he played in Sweden, and they're, they're hopeful that he can maybe fight for a spot on the team come training yeah. camp, but likely still developing in Abbotsford next year. But promising as a right-shot defenseman that they found out of nowhere. Um, You look at Akito Hirose, and he was really successful that they get out of the college ranks. Jack Rathbone, still young and developing. All of these are possible. Elias Pedersen, very good D-plus one year, draft-plus one year for the DPD that they drafted last year. So there's some promising things, but still very much not a lot and still lacking at the high end. And so the more I think about it, the more I look at the draft here, 11th overall, and while yes, there's going to be some very tantalizing players on the board at forward, the more I look into some of the D prospects in this draft, the more I am intrigued. Yeah. Especially, you know, I know you're really in on Tom Willander and... He's a guy that's just shooting up draft bro- mm-hmm. boards right now. You know, the mocks are, are throwing Tom Alander to the Canucks at 11th overall now. And that's yeah. a guy that, you know, wouldn't have been drafted, uh, mocked, you know, in the in the 20s even, it felt like not so long ago. So we're seeing a lot of these defensemen really start to skyrocket up draft boards as we get closer and closer to draft day, which seems to happen every year. But this year it just felt like, hey, there isn't that one great defenseman so You know, there's might not be a top guy, even in the top 10. You just got to avoid the defenseman, take the best player available. Now we keep looking at it. It seems like there's more defensemen there than we had originally thought or had originally suspected. Reinbacher, probably the guy that's number one consensus by most analysts right now. Uh, Sandine Palika, still really intriguing prospect and some offensive upside that a lot of people really like. Guliaev is one that's a little bit torn, but has a ton of offensive potential that people are really into. You have Tom Olander, who you spoke about and really like. Dragasevich is somebody that, uh, you know, keeps getting picked up a little bit here and there. There's certain people that really, really like Dragasevich. You see him on some certain analyst boards. But the one guy that I've been looking at a lot this week is the Russian Dmitry Simashev. You know, we talk about big defenseman, mobile, six foot four guy, skates incredibly well, and moves the puck pretty well. I know he had zero points in the KHL, but he's a seventeen-year-old playing in the KHL. So you know, there's a little bit of a caveat there. Uh, Just give the kid his due. Playing for a big team in the K as a seventeen-year-old is pretty impressive. And I'm starting to wonder if you know he's one of the guys that's underrated that we could be looking at in the top twenty, maybe even top fifteen of this draft.
1: He's one of the more fascinating guys when you look at some of the draft boards, you know. And you know, we've spoken to uh, a few scouts, and I know as you, we were talking earlier today, you mentioned that um, Shane Malloy's been big on Shimashev as well, and he's a guy that's spoken friend of, of the highly show. of him. Yeah, a huge friend of the show. And whereas you start looking at other draft rankings now, I've seen him. Uh, as high as 9 and 10, whether it's Elite Prospects or McKeens. They have him at that high, which shows you they view him as one of the best, if not the best defenseman in the draft. So you see a lot of variance. And then you see other lists, whether it's Bob McKenzie or Craig Button, that have him at 35 and 49. Now, McKenzie's was his midterm rankings, for instance. But here's what we're talking about, right? We're, we've been talking about how you're seeing guys being ranked 20, 30 slots, you know, different from other te- places. Like, how often yeah. you see this in drafts? Like, you're seeing a guy be nine on one list, a forty-nine on another list. Now, the Russian factor could be coming into it as well, and we're seeing that being an issue for teams. And you know, we'll see if that plays into his ability to come over and whether they feel there are obstacles there, much like Mitchkov, for instance. And maybe there are things that push him down a little bit in the industry. But from a skill set standpoint and what he can do, he's probably like in in that tier with those guys, if not the next tier below. So you start looking at those defensemen, they're like five guys that you can truly look at and say, Yeah, these these are potentially top twenty picks.
0: Yeah. They're they're you know, we went from a point where you know no defenseman is going to be taken in the top ten to Reinbacher's probably for sure going in the top ten now, and maybe there is a second one that ends up in the top ten. I don't think it's out of the question that the Canucks take a defenseman there at eleven, especially if just one is off the board at that point. Look, I'm not saying the Canucks absolutely have to draft for need here. They're going to draft by their board. That's the way they're going to say it afterwards. That's the way they're saying it right now. Their best player available is the one that they are going to draft at 11th overall, assuming they make that selection. And, yes, we do believe here on Canucks Central that they are likely to make that 11th overall selection come draft day. But the idea of getting a Simashev, because it's hard to find – a 6 foot 4 defenseman. It's hard to find a guy with that size that is as mobile as he is and a guy that is already playing pro hockey at his age. Now, yes, it's in the KHL and that doesn't mean he's going to immediately jump over and be an NHL player, but there are some, you know, at least indicators there that he's going to be a pro level and top-level defenseman, given his age and the fact that he's already playing games there, I mean, it speaks a lot, especially in the K, to um, to his defensive awareness or his defensive mind for the game that he's being trusted in those kinds of minutes as a 17-year-old for a fairly big club in the KHL.
1: Yeah, so, and,
0: uh, yeah, th- that's just something like I-, I don't need to watch a ton of tape to trust the coach that that is putting him on the ice you know that says something to me that he's being trusted in some minutes in those moments
1: yeah, and I mean, I think it's, it's a very positive thing, and I think he's one of those players that might be somewhat undervalued because of his defensive ability and, and the things that he can provide for you. But there are other players that are also kind of playing pro. Like, the reason I'm you know i a big fan of what um, uh, Tom Willander's done this year is because he's done it at the pro level, at the SHL yep. level. Same thing with uh, Axel Sandin-Palika. He's been doing it at the SHL level. And, you know, for draft-eligible players playing with pros, you know, that's a feathering your cap. Look at David Ryanbacher and the things that he's been able to do as well, right? I'd say, if you're sitting there at number 11, though, do you take Shimeshev over the righties?
0: That's the hard part. Probably not.
1: No, right? So, what, what the way I view it is, if you're sitting there at 11 and you're set on taking a defenseman, you're probably taking one of Reinbacher, Sandine, Polika, or Willander, I'd say. Like, yeah. one of those three players you're probably nabbing, right? If you move down, however, now you're starting looking at, Dragicovich, you start looking at Shemishet potentially, Guliayev, and are you willing to bypass those players to go down and take one of those types Mm -hmm. of defensemen? I think that's that's a question the team is going to have to ask itself. And I think you know when you look at it from your own perspective, are you willing to go down and take one of those guys who isn't a righty necessarily? I'm not. I see. I'm big on taking best player available, and I'm still about best player available. Yeah, righty defensemen are such a scarce asset. Like I'm, I'm, yep. I'm using every tiebreaker for righty defenseman
0: uh, to find a right shot defenseman that you really like hard to really pass that up when you get there to the draft and when you get there, it comes the same with centermen. Right? If you are at a position in the draft and you like a centerman, the tiebreaker and a winger, your, your tiebreaker is always going to the centerman. And that's the way that it's generally worked. That's the way it's definitely been trending over the last few drafts. And to have you know right shot defensemen in a draft that's supposed to be shallow for defensemen, you know, three potentially the first three defensemen drafted could all be righties here with Willander, Palika, and Reinbacher. So I think that is... Another interesting part here, but what I what I really like about Simashev again is the size, speed, mobile combo that he brings. You know, you think about Vegas's D, and and one tweeter saying this it wasn't Pucker Glenn. Vegas's defense wasn't built overnight; took some time uh, and doing some aggressive signings and trades. Absolutely, you know that that's kind of what you have to do. And Vegas is maybe the best example of being aggressive in trade and free agency in order to build your team, but.
1: I mean, we've been waiting a long time. It's not like the Canucks have just decided to be a good team now. We're talking about years of trying to get somewhere, yes. right? And it's like, it's, <laughs> it's like I get it. We got to be patient, but everybody's been patient for a while. It's not like they just decided today to become a good team again. It's like, you know, failed restart after failed restart.
0: Patience uh, doesn't doesn't come over overnight. <laughs> well, patience is uh, has been Canucks fans have had a lot of patience. Let's uh, let's yeah. be honest about it with the way that the team has gone. My point is on the big defenseman. I, I know you know okay. Yes, Quinn Hughes doesn't have to be huge to be good at what he does. He's incredible at what he does. And I think he's one of the top 10 defensemen in the league. But there is a part of the game where size is still valued and should still be valued. You have to be able to skate at that size. But the thing about a player with the profile of Simishev is six foot four and can skate. Think about your ability to recover when you are that size. Think about your range yeah. when you are that size. How much space, how much ice you actually eat up just because you're so hard to get around and that's one of the things about Vegas's size on D there's so much less space just because they eat up so much of the ice with their size and their range
1: yeah and as long as you can you're good enough at it right so I mean for me I like bigger defensemen as well but it's like do you like the guy because he's big and he has range or because he's effective at understanding how to defend like I mean, Tyler Myers yeah. has all the size and reach in the world it's not always effective. You know what I mean? Like no. so just being big doesn't mean you're going to be able to use that effectively. Well, he's sometimes, not so agile,
0: right? Like he's no exactly. Uh, you know, he doesn't turn so well sometimes, and and that can affect him on players going wide in different ways that they can get around him.
1: What I think would be interesting is if you're let's say the Canucks move down to say that 17 to 20 range. Mm-hmm. Is a decision between a the centerman, Chicago trade, right? Yeah, yeah. For instance, right? Is a decision between a centerman and. You know, a lefty defenseman. Because the righties may all be gone by that point, right? Like, it looks like the righties will get pushed up and kind of be gone in that top 15 range, potentially. And if that does come to pass, then you're really looking at maybe Dragosiewicz, depending on how you view him, or one of the better lefties available. You know, and Shimashim Mm -hmm. falls into that. How? How... How highly do they view a player like Otto Stenberg, for instance? So last week, when you were away, we were were kind of talking about the draft a little bit. We were talking about some of the centermen and, you know, who to look at. And one player whose name that I've heard a lot about more, and we've spoken about him a little bit as well, is Otto Stenberg, right? And doing a little bit more digging on Stenberg and and watching him play and everything, what I find really interesting is he played on the same team, Frolunda, as Philip Johansson this, this past year.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The Canucks scouted that team very closely this year. You know, whether it's right. uh, Mikhail Samuelson and those guys, they they, they watch for Lunda a lot. Otto Stenberg had a very impressive year for a young player playing center at the SHL level this year. Is that a decision you're looking to make then? Between a centerman potentially at that range, like a Stenberg type, or are you looking at taking that big defenseman who may be available? Like Those might be some of the intriguing decisions the Canucks might have to make at that range. Just some
0: more uh, traits and ideas for what the Canucks can do to build out their defense and their draft strategy coming up later on this month. And uh, text inbox six fifty six fifty. I see your Nikita Tramkin texts. Okay, <laughs> stop.
1: <I> can't play. <laughs>
0: Not not every player is Nikita Tram. Just because he's a big Russian defenseman doesn't mean he's exactly he's not, like Nikita Tramkin.
1: No, listen, Nikita Tramkin is a talented hockey player, right? I'm not going to say Nikita Tramkin sucks. He's played NHL games. Yeah. He's not going to be an effective NHL player. And and people that scout him closely, and I and I've spoken to scouts and and who watch him closely in Europe and NHL people, they do not believe his game is going to be able to translate effectively to the NHL. He can come up and play, be a seventh defenseman, maybe play 20 games here and get some games in and play seven eight minutes a game, maybe. 12 here and there but he's not going to be a player in the NHL. Just stop it. Just just let it go. Just forget about it. Okay? Just just let it go.
0: Forget about it. Okay? Forget about it. All right. It's Dan Racho, Satir Shaw. You're listening to Canuck Central.
1: The most opinionated Canucks show out there. Canucks Talk with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Dranz. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Canuck Central in the Kintec studio, Kintec footwear and orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net, the mobile Kintec studio. And um, Sat, are you prepared to be shocked?
1: Yes, please. Because tell.
0: Uh, silly season we know has begun, right? There was the great trade yesterday, three-way deal to kick off the off season in the National Hockey League, even though uh, there's still a few Stanley Cup games to be played and a Stanley Cup to be decided. But Demetri, or sorry, Andreas Athanasiou, uh, Dimitri was his brother whom I played at Seneca College with, uh, Andreas Athanasiou has signed a two-year deal <laughs> worth $4.25 per season with the Chicago Blackhawks. We talked H- about Chicago <laughs> 4.25.
1: Wait, wait, are you sure it's the proper like, account? <laughs> you didn't get, you didn't, we didn't get like fooled. I don't know. Or I
0: can't tell on Twitter anymore <laughs> because there's like not enough check marks and gold check marks and blue check marks. I don't know, but it's 4.25 million. Wow. For well, Andreas Athanasiou. I mean, we uh, talked about Garland being a, a potential candidate for trade to Chicago because, they're going to have to get to the floor somehow, and that's essentially what they're doing with this trade is trying to get to the salary cap floor because there's no other world where Andreas Athanasiu should be getting $4.25 mil. I love him. He's a Woodbridge boy, just like me. But, hey, come on. Let's be realistic about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I can't use this comparable anymore because it, it just would be wrong and I'll so many different angles. But <laughs> my, my favorite my, my favorite comparable for and, Andreas Athenasiou is um, is something I can't say right now, but essentially, okay. I, he's not a player I want to play four million dollars to. Like, <laughs> I, he's just not. I think I think Anthony Pavilia is a better hockey player. Oh yeah, for instance, and I mean, yeah. but maybe that's the same type of you know stylistic guy, right?
0: But uh, Andreas Athanasiou, four point two five million with the Chicago Blackhawks. Uh, Good for we him. pay this man four point two five million if we had it. Uh, it is Kevin Woodley, our goalie guru in Goal Magazine and NHL.com covering the Vancouver Canucks. What's happening, Woodley?
2: You got it somewhere. Come on, dig around the couch cushion. <laughs> we could get four twenty five. Maybe not four twenty 420, four point two five, but maybe four and yeah. a quarter. Like is it enough for a coffee? <laughs> maybe not a grande, is, maybe is, not a vente, but
0: we can Yeah, a is four I was gonna say, is four and a quarter even enough for a coffee these days?
2: Probably not. Um, Depends on where you buy it. How are you guys?
0: Uh we're doing uh we're doing well. Just uh, reacting to that uh contract signed by the Chicago Blackhawks. There's a lot of interesting news going around the league right now. We'll we'll get into some of it uh, because uh, there could be some goalie movement happening this off season. Um, But on the Stanley cup final, uh, I guess the biggest question going into game three here is for the Florida Panthers. Do you stick with Sergei Bobrovsky or do you go with Alex Lyon?
2: I think you stick with Sergei Bobrovsky. I mean, at the end of the day, as badly as it went, did it go any better for Alex Lyon? Yeah. No. Like you know, not really. Um and that's not with any disrespect to Alex Lyon, who has established himself by getting the Panthers into the playoffs and throughout the season as a guy who, you know, I think was always thought of in that three hole, and I think there will be some teams that look at him as maybe, you know, having being viable as a number two, and that's, you know, feather in the cap. Like, this is an aside and I'm I'm good at sidebars, but um, Another feather in the cap for Leo Luongo, their American Hockey League development coach. I think a lot of people that don't really know the position or aren't familiar with the people around it see the last name and assume he's there because of his brother. Um, Forgetting the fact that I think he had that job before Roberto Luongo went into the director role, had it for a while. And it just seems every time Florida has needed a guy or a guy has needed to be rebuilt confidence or structure of his game, um, Leo's done that job with their affiliate. You think of Chris Dreger and where he was leaving the Ottawa organization, starting in the ECHL with Florida to the results he had with the Panthers that earned him the deal in Seattle. Uh, you think of Alex Lyon. You, there's a few other names that were quickly obscure within a year or so. Um, there's a, there's a big uh, Austrian whose name is escaping right now, but coming straight out of their farm system and into Florida to help fill a role and having success at it, I think you know we can't overlook the role that Leo Luongo's played in that. So all that said, Bob's your guy. Bob got you here. If you can continue or get back to playing the way defensively that you were in front of him, he will give you a great chance to win. If you continue to, you know, either allow or in a lot of cases help take away his eyes I mean this is something I talked about going into the series I was on uh Jesus it Monday or I think it was Monday just talking about like the last two rounds the teams did not do a good enough job of creating the type of traffic or when they did creating the filtering pucks that got through that traffic to the top of the net to take advantage of some of Bob's tendencies when it comes to screens it's been a statistical weakness for a couple of years And part of this is the Panthers and part of this might be say teams like Carolina and how they try and generate offense, but they just, you know, whichever one is responsible for it. This is very much a team that got here in part because Bob's good, but also because they were allowing him to play to his strengths. And, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, I think goes into that in terms of, in terms of the traffic. And I mean, just general overall, too many chances, um, but for the most part, it's the types of chances uh, that they've given up in the, you know, in these games that I don't see. If they play that way, I don't care who's in that. I guess that's the point. And if they get back to playing that way, we've seen what Bob can do behind that team.
1: Well, and you know, I know it's you know it's not directly a goaltending question, but given how Vegas has played and how Aiden Hill's been able to hold his own between the pipes. How hard is it going to be for Florida to come back from an 0-2 series against a team like the Vegas Golden Knights? I mean, it's not going
2: to be easy, but <laughs> everything that we just said, like, think of the narrative that surrounded the, the playoffs that Bob was having mm-hmm. and the advantage that he gave them going into the Stanley Cup final and think two days later you guys are asking me or two games later, you guys are asking me who should start for the Florida Panthers, right? Like this can change in a hurry. Mm -hmm. But again, I think it's funny because it's almost a non-goaltending answer from the goalie guy. But I think a lot of this is sort of predicated on, can you get, are you going to, are you going to continue to either allow the other team to dictate or your inability to get to his weaknesses or are you going to play to his strengths? Right. And so um, Aiden Hill deserves a lot of credit For what he's done I said going into this I think it would have surprised a lot of people But I, you know, we, we talked about this I think last week Like On a overall performance Through the playoffs because Bob had played more He had the higher uh, goal saved Above expected But sort of on what I would view as more of a Per shot metric More of a rate metric uh, Save percentage differential Aiden Hill was actually better than Sergei Bobrovsky with similar expected base numbers when this series started. So the question becomes, so how do, you, how do you sort of get him out of that comfort zone? And a lot of those things are, again, are you playing to his strengths down low, or are you going to try and make him react to shots more cleanly from the middle of the ice? And that's something I don't think Florida has done well enough here. Uh, I do think, especially in Game 1, Didn't see it nearly as much in game two, but there were long stretches in game one where the Florida Panthers forecheck and pressure and the way they moved the puck around below the goal line um, had Aiden Hill, frankly, behind plays. Now they never generated chances on net to take advantage of it, but there were a lot of times where if you watch that game in game one through a goalie's eye, um, you would be like, he can't keep up right now. He's behind this play. He's behind that play. Um so I don't know that yeah, hey, O2 hole is tough, but I don't know that they're that far off. Like it as good as he's been and he's been really good, like I said, probably surprised people to know the numbers were better than Bob heading into the cup final. Um, it's you know, there are still elements there that can be exploited. The question again isn't so much um Aiden Hill is can can to generate those types of chances against a Vegas team that has done a really nice job of playing to his strengths.
0: Yeah, Vegas is just, uh, even at 5-on-5 in the series, they've been really, really good. And, you know, Florida, that that second game, you almost just want to throw it out the window for them because they they were a lot closer than the 5-2 scoreline suggested in in game one. You know, you you mentioned um, Leo Luongo, uh, the AHL coach there. Um, uh, goalie coach uh, there's been a lot of talk about Sean Burke and the work that he's done as the director of goaltending with the Vegas Golden Knights you know um, might be a little bit ignorant but I, I kind of want you to get give me a little bit more detail on what exactly goalie coaches do to get these guys ready day to day or to reset them when they lose their technique a little bit I'm sure every guy is different but, but how does a goalie coach go about doing their job to get these guys as good as they need to be?
2: Ooh, that's a, such a big
0: question. Um, <laughs> it's the summer. We need big questions.
2: Well, you know, I mean, I, I'd almost need to sort of think through it myself, right? Like, going right. on a day-to-day basis. Like, the amount of times, for example, that, uh, you know, I've talked to, you know, one of the Canucks goalies sort of after practice or, you know, I'll, I'll be leaving the rink like an hour and a half later after I think they probably would have left the rink and I run into them on the way down to the to the parquets and, oh, you know, had a video session with Clarky, went over things with Clarky. Like, um, it is so much more. Like, we know, I guess, I think most people know uh, the technical work that goes on. Like, yeah, okay, the team practice starts at 1 o'clock. Um, 12.30 is when, you know, the goalies are out with the goalie coach making sure they're on top of those details. Um, But it goes so much beyond that, or staying after practice to work on some of those technical details, Uh, the work on video, um, the work together to identify some of those technical details when they slip, or maybe when there are signs of slippage coming that isn't catching them up, up to them in games, how do we nip this in the bud? Sometimes that's just video. Sometimes that's talking through it. Sometimes it's one drill before practice to sort of reset a habit. You know, sometimes it's hey, we need to we need to get you out of the starters' net for for a couple of starts here, so you and I can spend four or five days on this because this is a little more significant and it's not going to fix itself with one or two drills. Um, there's a lot of tactical breakdowns of game footage, uh, decision making process, both as individuals as goaltenders, like like how we want to play this as a team, how you want to play this as a goalie. Are those two things fitting together right now? Like, there's just so many different details that go into the position that are all sort of part of what a goalie coach does on a day in day out basis to keep his guys sharp and keep them prepared now um the other part and this probably you know this is where sean because sean's a goalie coach too there right like they list him as the director of goaltending but he's on ice like, they've got kind of a weird setup there where they retained Mike Rosati in a different role. He was the goalie coach last year, uh, but he's not an AHL goalie coach because that's Freddie Brathwaite, who's down there with the Henderson Silver Knights on a day-in, day-out basis on the ice. And, and also, there's another credit to Vegas Golden Knights because as soon as they started, what did they do? They didn't hire a part-time guy. They hired a full-time AHL development guy in Fred Brathwaite. Um, didn't skimp out on that, and there are still organizations that do. The Canucks were one of them up until two years ago, right? So, um, you know, there there's uh, in the role Sean has right now, I would imagine, especially because the Aiden Hill, you know, acquisition fit with what some of the strengths of what Sean teaches are in terms of. That Benoit Lair style of, we all think of it as deeper on the goal line, Mike Smith style. But I always, I think the more accurate description is inside out. Like you work from a neutral depth, you can still take ice. And we've seen Naden Hill get to the edge of his crease, but he rarely starts there. And so you shorten your movements, you have efficient paths, you never take yourself out of the net. Um, you just sort of simplify the game, and if you have the size and, and and the hands that Aiden Hill does, like it, like he seems like that prototypical Sean Burke type goalie. So I would imagine when that acquisition was made, and we talk about horses for courses, um, you know, in terms of that that golf idea that some courses suit a certain, uh, certain style of or a certain the eye of a certain type of golfer, systems can also fit uh, certain goaltenders. And in this case, sometimes goalie coaching preferences can, can fit with certain goaltenders. And so acquiring a guy, knowing that some of the changes you might make, uh, even if they're subtle, because Aiden's never been overly aggressive positionally anyways, you think you can sort of work with this guy better than, you know, another guy that might be an option to acquire. And so, um, you know, again, it's it's sort of fitting all those pieces together is what a goalie coach does, which is why they probably shouldn't be the lowest paid guys on the staff in most organizations. Because they also break down the other goalie, and that becomes increasingly important in the playoffs. Tendencies, strengths, weaknesses, how to attack them. Uh, They usually look at opponent power plays, and they quite often have a voice in penalty kill structure. Again, um, I remember doing a, uh, or I guess uh, hosting, Uh, a Hockey Canada uh, symposium with a bunch of goalie coaches. And André Tournier, as a head coach, was on there, who's now the the head coach in Arizona. And he talked about when he was on Patrick Waugh's staff as a penalty kill coach, uh, he worked with the goalie coach to make sure the way they killed penalties actually changed depending on whether Semyon Varlamov or Jean sebastien Jaguer were in net. And that's the goalie coach working with him as the PK coach to make sure that how they attacked other power plays fit with the strengths of their goalies. And in that case, those strengths were so different that they actually had different tendencies in terms of how they PK depending on who was in that. And so, you know, a goalie coach can have an impact on all of those things from a top down who you acquire, who we draft. Do we have coaches at every level that are going to support the same messages specific to those goaltender strengths to how we play on the ice working with the assistants how we kill penalties looking for tendencies on how we attack on the power play based on other goalies and then oh yeah doing all the video work tactically and technically and on the ice to manage the strengths and weaknesses the ups and downs the highs and lows of the season which with each goaltender and in vegas's case that's quite a few so um Like I said, it's a long answer because there's a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. And each guy has, much like a goalie has strengths and weaknesses, each guy is going to have different strengths, different things that they do better than another guy. And this is why I think we see more departments, more, you know, I talked about Sean being a director, but also, you know, an on-the-ice coach with them. Uh, We see more voices, more people around, so that you can have different strengths and different guys serving different roles rather than just expecting one person to do all these things and do them well.
1: Well, and, you know, it's super fascinating. And I know in Vancouver, they have relied on Ian Clark, too. So it seems like they've, you know, they, they're very he's, he's a
2: one-man goalie department. Sure. Yeah,
1: he really is, right? <laughs> like he, he truly is. Now, you know, we also want to need to ask you kind of about some of the stuff happening around the National Hockey League, because you know, we got a trade. We had a goalie trade the other day. We had a, we saw a National Hockey League goaltender with term get traded. Now, the Kings had to give up quite a bit to get rid of Cal Peterson's contract. But before we get to Carter Hart and his value, what do you make of Cal Peterson that contract dump? And is that a player who can be redeemed, or it is what it is with him?
2: No, I think he can be. Uh, I think maybe there needed to be a change of scenery for it to happen because, you know, I watched a little bit in the American Hockey League and, and frankly, I didn't have a conversation with him, so, I you know, um, I'd feel better about this answer if I talked to him about the process. But I, I saw things in his game still, um, you know, at the American League level this year that I think led to him ending up in the American Hockey League level from the NHL um, and, and. Listen, there are strengths in his game. I remember before he had his breakout season, I was patting myself on the back because I called his breakout season because both the numbers and the eye test matched up. And his underlying numbers when he was in a part-time role there and the strength of his game, beating plays on the skates, the way he anticipates, um, not committing early, narrow stance that allowed him to be very mobile and efficient, Not getting locked in, widened out, like patience, patience, patience in a game that is all about East-West and not committing too early and holding edges. Like, those are all things that fit his game. He gets to the NHL, he gets the ticket, and it all seemed to erode. Um, For lack of a better term, when you watched him towards the end there, it's like, and this can happen. Sort of like a goalie osmosis. You play with a guy. You watch a guy every day in practice, you watch him, especially if you're in a backup role, every day on the bench, and some of his his habits become your habits. And they're not always good habits. And I've had more than one person say this to me. People that I trust as observers of the game and of goaltending talent say that they felt like he became a... There's a little too much Jonathan Quick in his game. And that doesn't necessarily fit the strengths that that I think a lot of people saw saw in Cal Peterson uh, and saw as to him having a long NHL career. And I don't know that I saw that change enough in the American League this year. And so is there a a goalie there? Absolutely. It's going to take the right person the right message because just, again, they have to manage the person as well as the position. And this goes back to the conversation about all the different roles of of a goalie coach. Add sports psychologist to it, right? Like you, You really are in a game that is so heavily dependent on getting guys in the right mindset, Um, you know, you really do need to make sure you're managing the person and not just the position, not just the goaltender. And so you can't just go in there and read the riot act. Um, You need to work with the guy. But I think if he can get himself on the same page with someone who sees the strengths and gets him playing to those strengths a little more regularly, you know, absolutely. Philadelphia could quickly turn this into an asset for them. Um, whereas obviously by the time, as you mentioned, the Kings moved on from him, uh, he, he was more of a liability and one they had to pay to get off of. And again, it goes right back to my my going to take away my goalie union card mantra. If there's one thing I avoid with goaltenders, it is term.
0: Yeah, and um, that's uh, that's been a bit of an issue there with the Cal Peterson contract. And you know another goalie that could be on the market is Carter Hart because Daniel Breer was asked about it and he said, they're willing to listen on anybody within that flyers organization. So immediately people are pointing at Carter Hart, um, you know, incredible talent. We saw it really shine through a little bit more this year as he found his game behind a really bad flyers team. Um, what do you think the trade market looks like for a Carter Hart?
2: Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, for, for, for some different reasons. Um, At at his sort of, his numbers fell off a little bit down the stretch. Obviously, that was a team that, I mean, obviously they weren't good, but then down the stretch, like at the end of a long season, things fell apart even more. But there was a point, I remember looking it up, I want to say we're talking February-ish, so well into the season uh before actually you know what it was right before he came here so people can check their check their canucks calendars and see when that was it was right before he came here the road trip through seattle and up to vancouver where numbers had him adjusted say percentage inside the top 10 in the national hockey league behind that same team and again they fell off down the stretch and hey that's you know being able to sustain it for a full season maybe one of the question marks for a guy who has you know isn't deep into his career and and started so well, but has since added question marks to the resume. But the talent, I agree, is there, and I think he showed it for a good two thirds of a season behind a, a not very good team. What he's capable of—I mean, top ten adjusted numbers behind that group—that's uh, that, that's nothing to. That's something I wouldn't ignore if I was an acquiring team. There's a goalie there. I think you got to find the right fit. Um, you know, I think he's interestingly enough. Like if I were to compare. You know, there's other goalies on the market, right? We keep hearing Connor Hellebuck's name, and obviously, you put him behind the right team, and he could be the difference maker to help you win a championship. But it's got to be a team that defends a certain way. Like there are strengths and weaknesses to Connor's game um, that are like they're, they're 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 distinctive. And if you put him again, this goes back to the Cup final conversation. You put Connor Hellebuck behind a team that plays to his strengths, and I would put money on them to win a Cup. You put Connor Hellebuck behind a team that plays to his weaknesses, that gives up a lot of lateral plays, and I wouldn't have anywhere near that confidence. I think Carter's a little more neutral. Like, I don't know that it matters what kind of team. Like, I don't think they're not as – that scale of strength and weakness is a lot more across the board even. You know what I mean? So I don't know if I'm explaining that well, but I think he would fit. Like, I'm not trying to say Carter Hart is better than Connor Hellebuck. Please do not, you know, take it that way. But I think he might fit on more teams more easily than somebody who will, you know, be way higher on everybody's We need to acquire this guy chart uh, in Connor Hellefuck.
0: Uh Woodley, we always appreciate the time. Thanks for this.
2: I appreciate it, guys. Enjoy the game tonight. We will talk to you next week.
0: Sounds good. There he is, the best in the business. Kevin Woodley joining us here on Canuck Central. Stan Richo, Satyar Shah coming up, overrated or underrated on Canuck Central.